Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Wednesday, November 23rd. Uh, just a point of information. Um, I will be off tomorrow, Thanksgiving, and also Friday. I will be back here on Monday the 28th. Uh, just a little programming note. You know, it's many people are making this a four-day holiday weekend, and I am going to be one of them. So um, I will see you after today. I will see you on Monday the 28th. Um, remember, we're going to end up today talking to Shelley Young, who owns the Chopping Block in Lincoln Square. It's a great place to take classes and buy food and cookware. We are going to ask her your turkey questions from 4.30 to 5. So far, uh, it looks like most of the questions have to do with safety. You know, like, how do you safely stuff a turkey? How do you know when your turkey is done? How do you transport the food? So we will get some answers in that last half hour, if you have a turkey question, uh, feel free to call in um, 773-763-9278. If you want to write that down, 773-763-WCPT. If you've never called in before, but you think to yourself, I've got a turkey question. We'll be talking to Shelly Young to lead us in to the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Lots of news to talk about before then. Um it was just announced this morning that the January 6th committee does indeed want to talk to Mike Pence. That's been kind of an up in the air question. Mike Pence, trying to get ahead of it, has said repeatedly that um, the January 6th, basically what he's saying is the January 6th committee has um, no legal right or no standing to call him the the vice president, the former vice president before them. He's made it clear that he does not want to talk to them. Even if it is behind closed doors, he is, um, he's saying no. He's, he's, before they even asked, he said no, because I'm sure he got wind that that was something that they were considering. Well, they've decided that they want to talk to him. Now, what does that entail? Does that entail issuing him a subpoena? And if it does, and he decides he doesn't want to talk, can he simply drag the process out in court till this session of Congress wraps up, knowing full well that when the Republicans take control of the House, uh, one of the first things they'll do, well, one of the first things they'll do, forget about whether or not they reach out to Mike Pence, one of the first things they'll do is bring an end to the January 6th investigation that is being conducted it's being conducted by the house instead of by both chambers because remember mitch mcconnell wouldn't play nice um said he didn't want to have anything to do with it so nancy pelosi said well it's really too bad this should really this affected both of us both of our chambers we should really do this together but if you don't want to somebody still has to so i guess it's going to be us and then she asked kevin mccarthy to nominate a certain number of Republicans to the committee, and he made it, he turned the whole thing into a joke. He nominated the crazies, you know, the Jim Jordans of the world, 
and the Matt Gateses, who people who said publicly that they were going to turn it into a whole clown car thing. And Nancy Pelosi said, no, thank you. Thank you, Mr. McCarthy. But no, I reject the people you are putting forth for this committee. And then she reached out to Liz Cheney, who was the first. And uh, a little while later, reached out to Adam Kinzinger, who was the second Republican member of the committee. Down the road, when the committee seemed to be really doing good work and really putting on public hearings that were convincing people and shedding light on things that people didn't know about, then it, um, even Donald Trump <laughs> took Kevin McCarthy to task. You know, well, you, sh- you should have shouldn't have walked away from this. You should have been a part of this. Like if maybe Kevin McCarthy had nominated more moderate Republicans, they would have been able to clog the system, jam the work, slow the work down. I don't know. But um, the January 6th committee wants to talk to Mike Pence. We know Mike Pence does not want to talk to them. <clears throat> they have, what, a month and a half before um, they probably will be closed. The shop will be closed because, you know, the new Republican Congress, oh, they would need to. They need to investigate the COVID response of Joe Biden, and they need to investigate Hunter Biden. Oh, my God. Do you think we're going to have as many hours and dollars spent on Hunter Biden as they spent on Benghazi? Anyway. January 6th committee wants to talk to Mike Pence. Mike Pence doesn't want to talk to them. We will see if anything happens. Also in national news, Georgia's very, very ridiculous, restrictive six-week abortion ban is uh, back in effect. A Fulton County judge had um, stopped it, um, but the Georgia Supreme Court has decided to look the case over, challenging it, and uh, they've decided that, well, you know, While they're looking things over, we probably should just let this happen. We'll let this, we'll let this go forward while we study this case. So in Georgia, Georgia becomes one of the most restrictive states in the nation with a six week abortion, abortion ban. For women, who you generally don't find out that you have a baby with serious problems the, the about the early you can't do amniocentesis till second trimester there is another test and having been a what they delightfully call a geriatric mother i've experienced all this stuff up close and personal there is a test Chorionic villi sampling that you can do in at the 10 to 12 week mark that will give you a genetic profile, particularly if you are an older mother and uh, are hatching older eggs, which don't always work the same way the younger eggs do. But what happens if even if you take the earliest test you can possibly take and at 12 weeks you discover that there is a, a fatal anomaly. Maybe it's one that won't kill the fetus right away. Maybe the fetus will live for three or four months inside you and then die. 
you leave the state of Georgia to get medical treatment. And isn't that sad? And frankly, even for women who want to have an abortion for any other reason, six weeks, you're barely past a missed period. Lots of women do not have periods that are like clockwork. You know, once a month, every four weeks, once in a while, it's every five weeks. Sometimes it's not till every six weeks. Sometimes women skip a period and then have a period the month after that. It is not an exact science. It is not something that you can set your watch by. For all intents and purposes, the way this is going to play out is a six-week abortion ban is essentially a complete and total abortion ban because virtually no one even knows they're pregnant at the six-week mark. So keep that steam that brought you out to vote in the midterms. Keep that head of steam because this is not over. This is not over. Thank God they didn't get both houses of Congress because it is absolutely clear that they would have tried to bring about a federal abortion ban. And they I'm sure they would have tried to write it in such a way that it superseded state law, which means that the places that still have legal abortion, a.k.a. Illinois, would be subject to these regulations. I mean, You know, President Biden said before the midterm elections, if they won both houses and tried to do some of this nonsense, that he would use the veto pen. And then they would need a supermajority to get this stuff passed, and they don't have it. That's It's not going to come to that. But if this is not over. We won a battle. The midterm elections, we stood our ground. We won a battle. We have not won the war. That is going to take time and dedication and determination. But that's okay. We got all those things. We got all those things. Real quick, I um, want to do some uh, local news. You know, I was a little surprised that Chewy Garcia got into the race to be the next mayor of Chicago so late in the game. You know, he kind of, the union endorsements that he got when he ran against Rom were already allotted. Um, a lot of uh, big donors had already committed to their candidates. But it looks like um, there are still some big donors that are ready to support him. Chicago Tribune reporting that he's pulled in, uh, just since his announcement, some $600,000 in fundraising. Not a bad haul. Not a bad haul for um, this early in the game. On another uh, political note, Uh, We still don't know whether or not Ed Burke is going to run for um, another term to be alderman. He is, of course, under indictment. Um, But you know what? Even the last time his name was on the ballot, you know, he was certainly under a cloud of suspicion. And uh, he won his vote handily when people in his ward were asked, you know, if, I mean, this guy's being investigated for corruption and you voted him back in office. And they were like, you know what? He's a good alderman. He takes care of his ward. He takes care of his people. And that's what we care about. And so he um, won handily. He has till Monday to file his signatures. He hasn't done so yet. And he hasn't said what he's going to do. So we'll keep an eye on that one for you. And uh, one last thing. 
before we wrap up this particular section. You know, we've talked about campaign campaign finances. We everybody knows that if we really want our campaigns to be fair, they should be federally funded or state funded. You know, you shouldn't have to raise money. I mean, it it really gives wealthy candidates an edge. I mean, Willie Wilson has close to five million dollars in his campaign war chest, and almost all of it came from his own bank account. You know, unless we want our political system to get to the point where only wealthy people can afford to run, we really need campaign finance reform. Uh, there's a new committee, though. I mean, we we've always talked about dark money, especially in Republican politics. You know, the Koch family and the Uline family, some of the giving they do is out in the open. But there are also these dark money packs that, by the way they are structured, don't have to say who's giving money to the pack nor how much they're giving. Well, we now have uh, a pack like that in Chicago. I know it's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, it's called something like the 77 Committee, and it is structured so that people, you know, because there are generally there are caps to how much as an individual or as a company you can give to a candidate. But certain PACs, like the one Trump uses to finance his life, some PACs, the rules are just wide open. You collect as much money as you want from people who don't have to name themselves and the money can be spent in any number of ways. There is now a pack like that. It's called the 77 Committee, and it is designed to raise money for Lori Lightfoot. But the way it is structured, who donates to the pack and how much they give does not have to be disclosed. A few days ago, uh, Willie Wilson put out a big statement really reaming the mayor for this for this pack, you know, that it just, this isn't, this certainly isn't bringing the light. Um, the other candidates, as far as I know, have not made public statements about it, but it is, um, it feels kind of weird. And here's the thing. It's not only you can donate pretty much as much as you want, um, you don't have to name yourself, but a lot of the rules, like if you're a company and you do business with the city, there are rules to when or if you can donate to anybody. Well, you know what? Don't apply to this pack. The Tribune is already reporting um, that they believe that there's $20,000 in this pack that was donated by a Southside Construction Company which is one of the contractors working at the Obama Presidential Center. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out and whether or not the other candidates for mayor also uh, take the mayor of Chicago to task for being supported by something that has such an incredible lack of transparency. Lots of things to keep eyes on. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, We have... um, Somebody who has done great service, we want to say thank you to. We're going to talk to her when we come right back after this.
This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are very pleased to be joined by a very special person. You know, there's a lot of people who are good people, a lot of people who do great things and have jobs where they can contribute to their communities. But but rarely does that kind of service rise to the level that when you retire, there are major celebrations in your honor. This Saturday... Uh, November 26th at 10 a.m., there is going to be a celebration like that at Rainbow Push Coalition down on uh, East 50th Street in Chicago. It is going to be a gathering to celebrate Judge Arnett Hubbard. They've declared it Judge Arnett Hubbard Day because she is retiring from the bench she joins us now to uh, chat with us. Hello, Arnett. Thank you for being here. Hello, Joan. It's my pleasure, and I appreciate the chance to talk with you and your audience. How are you? Well, you know, um, some of the people we know in common have pointed out to me that in your time on the bench, you have done so much to promote social justice, um, not only at the at the county level and at as well the state level as well. I mean. To be honored this way with your very own day is something that most of us will never see. What that you've done, what of your work do you think has gotten you this kind of recognition? Tell us about some of the things you've accomplished. Well, first, I have to say this is an unimagined honor. Never when I was freezing on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. at Operation Push with Reverend Jackson's and then going out to picket, did I ever think this day could come? What? (laughs) Over over the decades, I followed the example by so many, including Harold Washington, whose re-laying ceremony I was at this morning, who managed and, and strove to stay the course and to remember that we are here to serve and to contribute. And this was, and this again was so great. Um, and I don't have to tell you about Harold Washington. Uh, you know those days. And I, like me, I take it you remember them with, with great pleasure. Yes, I do. I, through Harold Washington, by the way, I had the opportunity to be a commissioner on the Cable Commission, the first one and to try to help shape that uh, entity to what Harold Washington envisioned, which was making it free, available, accessible to everyone. Uh, Later on, I had the privilege to serve by virtue of him on the Chicago Cable Commission. I don't mean cable, I just said cable. On the Chicago Board of Elections, where I could pursue with some... uh, greater opportunities, the right to vote, to register and vote. And so in 1990, I had, with, the, of course, the cooperation of the board, um, the leadership of a very successful register and vote campaign 
And that was the title of it. Uh, Cardinal Bernadine, um, other notable college presidents, chancellors, and student leaders, and the youth um, were part of that and made it a great success. In fact, Joan, I was amazed to see that our PSA to register and vote was featured, or at least aired, at the Super Bowl that year. Wow. I need to say that these successes in public life have been a part of the greater community who thinks we can and must make this a better city by our own personal participation and by reaching out to others. Uh, I wouldn't say like-minded others. We want to recruit the ones who don't agree with us. (laughs) Well, clearly those are the ideas and the principles that you have not only lived by, but also done your work as a judge remembering each and every day. And um, I am so pleased to be able to say congratulations. I hope that this isn't full retirement because I think you still have an awful lot to give to the community. And uh, I'd love to hear about what you decide to do next, okay? Well, first of all, it's not retire, it's rewire. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yes. And so now I feel freer to engage in the kinds of things that that are among my passions. Not a long list, family, community, service, contributions, and gratitude uh, that helps inspire me. So in my next chapter, I have so many things I want to do. The problem is how do I do them, or at least a number of them? At the same time, I recognize that if you accomplish all your goals, you didn't think far enough and high enough. (laughs) Well, I wish you congratulations, and I wish you happy Judge Arnett Hubbard Day. And I hope uh, anybody who is within the sound of our voices will come out to Saturday, this Saturday, November 26, 10 a.m., Rainbow Push Coalition, 930 East 50th Street, so that you can meet Judge Arnett Hubbard in person and thank her for her service. Arnett, thank you so much for being here. Um, I really appreciate what you've what you've done, and I know you're going to continue to do great things. Thank you. I thank you so much. And please let me uh, say I remember your pioneering role in media, particularly uh, at a time when women were so limited in their various <laughs> activities. But not yeah. you did it. I'm proud of well, you. I thank you. Thank you very much. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. All this week, we've we've been spending part of our day looking at climate, recycling, reuse, being a better steward of our planet. It's particularly something to think about 
as we approach the holiday gift-giving season. And maybe you want to think about what's important, what people need, what kind of packaging, what kind of waste. There's all kinds of um, choices to be made in the next month or two. And maybe, maybe there are choices you want to think a little bit more about this year than you have in the past. So we have been talking to people from various aspects of the whole um, reuse, recycle um, the planet, what we eat, how we live. Toward that end, um, we're joined by Mayor George Van Dusen, who is mayor of Skokie and also has uh, worked as chairman of the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County. And uh, he can talk about that. He can talk about recycling. He can talk to us about Skokie. George, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. It's uh, an important subject uh, in today's life. It is. Um, so, in the in the city of in the city of Skokie, what kind of uh, programs are available for residents to recycle? Well, uh, in the village, we have a variety of recycling programs comprehensive uh this last monday the village board unanimously passed an updated eight-year sustainability plan which uh, we we look forward to creating a composting program but in addition to that we do every type of imaginable Recycling, uh, even textiles. If somebody has clothing, uh, we will pick that up. Uh, We contract out, and a company will pick it up curbside. Uh, The important thing is to get as much out of going to the landfill as possible. Uh, And is that where most solid waste of ours ends up? That's that's where it ends up, and we estimate that maybe as much as forty, even fifty percent of the waste that winds up in landfill uh, is food scraps. Uh, even as much as twenty-five percent of food scraps is unused food. It's uh, just simply wasted. And, of course, there's food insecurity. Uh, So we've got to devise ways to increase our composting. Uh, And many of the municipalities in Swank now have very – we've been experimenting with various types of composting programs. Uh, What Skokie – is looking at doing is sort of a hybrid system where a resident would be able to subscribe to a service that on a weekly basis would pick up the food scrap compost. But in addition, if somebody doesn't want to subscribe, then we would have located around the village various places where you could drop off your composting. Uh, 
you, you might remember years ago when recycling was really just getting started, uh, we started out by having regional drop-off centers. And what we realized was residents were ahead of government and wanted to conveniently dispose of their their paper, their plastics, their bottles, etc. And so it evolved into curbside pickup. And of course, today, we pick up millions of tons of recyclables. And we've diverted uh, enormous amount of garbage from the landfills to uh, reuse and diversion. Uh, the Solid Waste Agency, which is 23 municipalities legally bound together, originally started because there was the threat that landfills in the area in the state of Illinois would be closing down. And where would our waste go? Yeah. We were, th- we were thinking, uh, you, you might recall back in those days, this would be the 80s, early 90s, would we putting, be putting our waste on railroads heading out to Wyoming, the Dakotas, where there would be massive landfills. And we started, it was a small, small program at first. What if we diverted from the landfills? And we've gone from about 6% of waste being diverted in the late 80s to upwards of 35% being diverted today. Wow. We think, and you, you'll notice, landfills have not been closing. And that's just simply because of the diversion rate. Uh, solid Waste Agency, uh, there's Swalco, which is our counterpart in Lake County to the north. Uh, but we think we can do much better. And so we're we're looking at composting, uh, looking at trying to figure out if there are some incentives that can't be increased for solar power, uh, which does not, isn't related to landfills, but is related to uh, a generation of electrical energy. And it's evolved into we no longer call it conservation or environmentalism. It's now sustainability, um, basically sustaining our planet and moving away from carbon and mm-hmm. from resources that when they're landfill create methane that has a deleterious effect on our, um, on our uh, space and uh, air. So we're... Um- I'm talking to um, Skokie Mayor uh, George Van Dusen. He uh, not only is mayor of Skokie, but he's also chairman of the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County, or SWANK, as we're saying, uh, because it's just easier to get out. Uh, George, we need to take a break. When we come back, you know, this is the time of year when people buy even more stuff than they do the rest of the year. Buy more food, buy more gifts, order more stuff. 
Um, and I'd like to uh, know when we come back if you have any ideas about how we can be a little bit more responsible with that. I'm talking to George Van Dusen. We will continue this conversation right after a break. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. George Van Dusen is the mayor of Skokie and also chairman of the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County. Solid waste, that's the stuff that we throw away. And this holiday season, we're going to be probably throwing away a lot of packaging material. Now, George, I know that companies, I've seen it in what we get delivered to the house over the years. It seems that companies are trying to be a little bit more responsible. I almost never, ever get a delivery of anything where you have those styrofoam peanuts. And those styrofoam peanuts used to be in every box. Now they're using like plastic bladders filled with air to cushion contents. So it sounds like the people doing the packaging and the mailing are trying to be more responsive. But what, as consumers, what should we keep in mind this holiday season as we're buying our gifts? Well, uh, I think a couple things at the holiday season. Uh, one is perhaps be a little more energy efficient in the holiday lighting that you purchase. Um, and many of the municipalities will take the old lighting and, uh, like Skokie, for example, we will take the old lighting, uh, that you exchange. And if you get a more energy efficient lighting system, uh, and also one of the things that's very important, a lot of the gifts that we give, uh, require batteries. Do not put the batteries in with the recycling. Uh, most municipalities have battery drop-off sites. Uh, just get in touch with your municipality and drop them off at the specific site for batteries. Putting them in with the usual uh, recycling it is not good. It can cause some very serious problems. Uh, also, when you're looking at gifts, think about what can be put in with your recycling. Paper, metal, plastic, glass. But also be very conscious of what you can't put in. Uh, one of the things that causes us the most trouble is people throw in plastic bags and film. I understand uh, that we can't do that, but I don't understand why. If I can recycle a plastic bottle, George, why can't I recycle a plastic bag? I mean, I know I can't, but I don't understand it. Well, the bags get caught in the machinery. Uh, I've been down at some of the recycling uh, uh transfer stations and i've 
watched it. These bags get caught in the machinery, which is on a conveyor belt. And then you have to stop all of the processing. So it's more the fact that it's a bag rather than what it's made of. Exactly. Uh, Take the bags to like a grocery store. Um, I don't know if I'm permitted to do this, but I'll give it a little bit. Go ahead. Sure. Jewel, for example, will take your bags. Take them in, put them in. Those bags will then be taken to a specific outlet that will process the bags. But if they're caught in with the recycling, it just simply gums up the system. Uh, In some cases, it can even ruin machinery if it's done enough. And it's simple little things like that. And and uh, I want to clarify something. You cannot recycle like paper towels, correct? Oh, right, definitely. Yes, yeah. yes. Does, well, you know, I in, can't. I can't seem to get my family to wrap their head around that. Before we take the recycling out, I have to dig through and pull out all the nap paper napkins and the paper towels, and I tell them again and again, yeah. "This we don't recycle this." And they're like, "Okay." And then the next week, they're back again. Well, you point up one of the biggest headaches that that we have. And in a sense, it's an indication that people are very conscious of the need to recycle. If somebody doesn't know what should I do, they will throw it in the recycling. Yes, that's yes. That's what I think of my whole family does. Whereas if, if I'm not sure I will keep it out, but but it's like, well, I'm not sure. I'll just put it in there and let somebody else figure it out. Well, what happens, and I think we became most conscious of it two or three years ago. Uh, China, years ago, 10, 15 years ago, was a major market for recyclables. And they would take just about anything. Today, starting about two or three years ago, China clamped down. And if any plastic, for example, is contaminated, they won't take it. So it's made us much more conscious. So if you throw in those old, soggy paper towels, it will contaminate what you have there that legitimately should be there. I mean, say you're recycling a magazine. I don't know. Do we? I think we still have magazines. Yes, I'm an old-fashioned uh, girl. I still get magazines. I, I am too. I, I love magazines still. I'm giving my age away, I guess. <laughs> you and uh, me but, both. But newspapers, I still read newspapers and uh it, it so the paper towels contaminate all of that, and that eventually winds up in the landfill. So it's better just throw it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one of the things that we did, uh, and and it was a result. The this last summer, the solid waste agency took four or five different municipalities. And our interns went out and literally inspected all or partial uh, parts of 
garbage routes, the recyclable containers, and would take the recyclables out of the containers and separate what should be there, what shouldn't be there. And what we discovered is a lot of it is getting contaminated. So we've initiated a program in Skokie this last August. We sent out some of our uh, volunteers to put tags on all of the recycled totes, reminding our residents on one side of the tag, it says, thank you. And it lists with pictures, metal, paper, plastic, glass, that can be recycled. And then on the other side, it's got, oops, I spy contamination, plastic bags, batteries, bags, uh, foam, different bulk materials. And it's got different photos that shows these cannot be recycled or they can cause some various serious problems like batteries. So for us, it's a matter of constant education, education, education. And the other uh, big uh, discussion we have in this family, that I have convinced them of this, George, but I have to keep reminding them. Because after every few months, they'll say, they'll ask me again, and that is cloth. You cannot put fabric in your recycling, correct? Correct. Uh, Now, some municipalities, uh, I mentioned Skokie, we... You can put some of that uh, in with the textile recycling. And, I mean, we would ask you, you know, make sure you've washed it and dried it and so on. But uh, some of it can actually be recycled um, and reused. But it's got to be separated. You can't put it in the totes. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, well, I know that there are some organizations, there's some, there's one veterans organization that collects, um, cl- like used clothing, but they don't sell it like goodwill. They basically chop it all up and, and turn it into rags. And I've, I, they do something with that. I don't know what, where it goes from there, but it's a, it's part of the process. But, you know, if, if you've got, Something and and I I don't want people to forget about this the the reuse part. If you've got something that is maybe something you don't care for anymore, maybe something you ha- you were given it as a gift and you've never liked. Let's not forget places like the Salvation Army and Goodwill. You know, especially like this time of year, if there are coats that your kids have outgrown and there's nobody else in the family who can use it, it's not recyclable. In the sense of, you know, putting it out with the paper and the plastic, but it is recyclable. But if it's in good enough shape, no tears, no stains, something that, you know, somebody would want to wear to take it to an agency where, you know, if you if you can't afford cold weather clothes for your kids and you have a chance of getting a nice parka for five dollars at Goodwill, that's a that's a great use of that. And I think sometimes people forget about that, George. I agree entirely. Uh, Goodwill, Salvation Army, 
they all do uh, very important and good work. And they are ironically part of the recycling system. They help people who need uh, a very inexpensive way to get clothing. And at the same time, we don't think of it this way, but they are part of the recycling system. And they provide a very important service to us. And I would point out, not just during the time of year, but uh, the food pantries. Uh, uh, December is food pantry month. And they provide an essential service. So if somebody wishes, uh, call their local food pantry. Uh, if you have some canned food that uh, you're not going to be using, don't throw it out. Uh, see if your food pantry can't use it and help a family out that is in, uh, is in need. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's a lot I think we can do. It's just being conscious of it. People today are very busy getting the kids to school, getting to work, uh, getting food on the table for the evening meals, uh, things like that. And we're not always conscious of this part of our uh, our day, I think. And that's where I think education and uh, yes. public service uh work like you're doing uh, that you've been doing this whole last week are so important. And I thank you for doing it. It's very important. Well, you're very welcome. I mean, I think that the the good news is that I think that our youngest generations, they're growing up with this kind of sensibility. For my, for my generation, George, this is something that we're kind of trying to learn after the fact. Um, but I think we are all going to benefit if we can all be a little bit more sensitive to our planet this holiday season. George, thank you so much. It is a delight talking to you. Skokie's lucky to have you as their mayor. Uh, Thanks for being here. My pleasure. It's a pleasure uh, talking with you anytime. Be well. You too. Happy Thanksgiving to you. That's Mayor George Van Dusen of Skokie, also chairman of the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County. We are going to take a break for news, and when we come back, you might remember Monday, we talked to one of the two authors of a book called Diet for a Changing Climate. The people who say we should, you know, be better to our planet, we should eat insects and weeds and swamp rats. I don't think that's real practical for most of us. Coming up next, we're going to be talking to Paul Greenberg. His book is The Climate Diet. These are some suggestions that I think most of us can actually use. We'll talk to Paul right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. 
Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Paul Greenberg has written a book called The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. The first several chapters all have to do with the different ways that we can buy and consume food. Unlike the authors I spoke to on Monday who said that we should follow the U.N. guidelines and eat more insects, I am not ready to go that far to save the climate. But some of the suggestions that Paul Greenberg has in the climate diet are definitely things that I can live with. Paul is here now to talk about his book. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hello. Paul, oh, hi. Can I you can. hear me now, Paul? Great. I, I can do. Yeah. How, how are you doing, Joan? I'm doing great. So what inspired you to write The Climate Diet? Well, you know, it's kind of inspired to a certain degree by Thanksgiving, right? Um, because there's this or, or Christmas or whatever holiday brings people home for the holidays. And, you know, inevitably, we've all had that moment when a teenager has decided to become vegan or um, somebody else, you know, has decided, like, they're never going to touch beef again. Um, they come <laughs> to the Thanksgiving dinner or the Christmas dinner and a fight ensues. Um, and, uh, you know, the people who want to eat meat forever dig in their heels and the vegan digs in his or her heels. And before you know it, you've got a really unproductive argument. So... What I wanted to do was to actually talk to everybody who is sort of leading in the field um, with respect to how you reduce your your carbon footprint and ask what are the actual numbers? What will actually change our footprint overall? And I wanted to come up with things that um, – where we could kind of meet in the middle. Um, and so it's a number of different suggestions that range from food to transport to how you live your life at home, how you go to work. Um, but since it's Thanksgiving, let's talk about food. Yes. The, um, the first several chapters are about food. Chapter number one, the headline, Ease Up on Meat and Cheese. Um, those are big uh, carbon producers? They are. Well, you know, I remember uh, when I was in college, a lot of people went vegetarian. And when they went vegetarian back in the 90s when I was in college, it didn't mean they necessarily gave up uh, cheese. And it turns out, so beef is a super, super um, high cost carbon emission food, um, something over something around. Well, let's talk in kilo, kil, kilograms because that's how uh, most of the world counts these things, but about 27 kilos of carbon emissions for every kilo of beef that you eat. Um, just to put that in perspective, lentils are like 0.9. So it's 27 <laughs> times what eating a bean would be. Um, but meanwhile, cheese um, turns out to be actually very significant um, in terms of carbon impact as well. So something like 13.5 kilos uh, per kilo of cheese eaten. So about half of beef, but still more than pork, more than chicken, uh, more than a lot of other options out there. So, yes, um, beef and cheese, let's ease up on those. You know, it's funny. I am the person you just described. I became vegetarian early on in life, and after a while, I started putting on weight, and I'm like, I'm vegetarian. How can I be putting on weight? And I realized I was eating cheese at every meal, at every yeah, well, meal. We- 
We we all remember the Moosewood Cookbook, which was like this: broccoli and cheese, uh, peanuts mm. and cheese, <laughs> lettuce yes. and cheese. And it's really just not the right way if we're talking from a carbon perspective. Also, from a health perspective, I actually went vegan um, for a couple of years to and kind of as an experiment, I was writing an article to see what the health effects of a vegan diet. And I'd done other kind of articles like this. I went on an all fish diet, da da da. But when I went on a vegan diet. Cutting out the cheese and the dairy products, that actually significantly lowered um, my LDL cholesterol as well as my blood pressure. And so that's something, that's a life change that I have made. I've really cut, I'm I'm not fully vegan at this point, but um, I do very rarely milk or cheese at this point. Yeah. Um, I'm going to combine chapters two and three. Two is consider the chicken and chapter three is or the fish. (laughs) That's right. Which, by the way, is, you know, you know, it's what the American Heart Association also tells us. But, yeah, so chicken turns out to be a tremendously efficient way to get animal protein on the plate. And I certainly I'm not going to argue with those out there who say veganism is the best way. It is the best way. If you're going to really cut your carbon footprint from food, don't eat any meat or animal products at all. But chicken is something like 6.9 uh, kilos of carbon emissions per kilo of uh, meat produced. You compare that with 27 of beef or 13 of cheese, and you've got a pretty good deal. Um, fish, meanwhile, also quite good. Um, wild fish, by some, you know, the, the numbers are kind of scattered, but wild um, uh, midwater trawl caught fish like your Alaska pollock that is in your filet fish sandwich or sardine or an anchovy, um, that comes in um, below two kilos um, per, mm. per, per kilo of, of food produced. So it can be super efficient. That said, there are some fish and shellfish out there that are pretty carbon expensive. Lobster. Uh, very carbon expensive. Really? Yeah. Well, because there's a lot of stopping and starting when you pull up a lobster trap, um, and it just—it's it, just the nature of the fishery. It's not, you know. And there are many other good things about the lobster fishery. You know, you, there's no very little bycatch. It's—it's it's, um, uh, you can throw back the big breeders and the small ones. But overall, from a carbon perspective, carbon is uh, the lobster is expensive. Shrimp is very expensive. Unfortunately, for the um, the average American, for whom shrimp is by far the most consumed seafood. We consume, I think, total 15 pounds of seafood per person per year in this country, and four of those pounds are, are shrimp. So we really oh, eat a lot of shrimp. Wow. And, I, and, 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 you know, to go further into the book, I, you know, my, one of my biggest um, advice, pieces of advice for people who are interested in lowering their seafood footprint is swap half shells uh, for cocktails. So in other words, instead of, instead of having that shrimp cocktail for your appetizer, have oysters on the half shell because oysters are quite, quite low in carbon. Yes, that's chapter four. And I have, I have another suggestion for chapter four because you yeah. say make uh, oysters your appetizer instead of shrimp. In the interest of keeping our weight down, let's just get, do away with appetizers altogether. Because <laughs> I cannot do, I cannot get an oyster down. It gets partway down and it shoots right back out of my mouth. It is just not going to happen, Paul. Well, you know, there are those who love the oysters and those who don't, and I respect that. But I will tell you, in terms of calories, um, a dozen oysters has about as many calories as a single large banana. Wow. You know, maybe that'll make the oyster a little smoother. I don't know. I won't won't torture you, but um, if you don't like oysters, um, mussels are actually a great, um, uh, really super low carbon. They can actually be even lower carbon emissions than lentils, um, which is kind of amazing because, you know, we often think, oh, if it's an animal, it can't possibly be lower than a plant. But um, farmed mussels are quite, quite low. So you can have, you know, your 
your your moule frite if you're watching uh, I, as I was today watching a Belgian soccer game in the World Cup and I enjoyed that together with some moule frites so go for it <laughs> okay now chapter five about you talk about eating plants which seems yeah. to make a lot of sense yeah and I think what I what I say is that you should try to be something of a picky plant eater because when you uh, are going to eat plants, um, certainly the average plant is much, much lower in emissions than the average uh, piece of meat. But there are mistakes that you can make as a only a plant eater. Um, one thing is to do things like, go, believe it or not, going to the green market in the middle of winter and ordering and buying some, you know, some salad greens that are grown in a hothouse because Greens grown in a hothouse in the wintertime, that's pretty carbon expensive. So it's actually one of those things that goes against that whole locavore thing. Oh. Middle of winter, if you're going to eat the salad greens, you're probably going to want them from a warmer climate where it's easier to eat them. Um, the other thing is just, you know, I think there's a lot of virtue signaling that goes on when we go to the farmer's market. And I imagine a number of your listeners are that, you know, do go to the farmer's market. But, okay, so you're going to drive to the farmer's market. Are you going to shop for your entire week or, you know, which, which would be efficient? Or are you going to just virtue signal and buy a single head of broccoli? Because you've just pretty much nuked all of your carbon uh, loveliness uh, by driving huh. 20 miles to the, to, the, to the green market back. So we do need to kind of look at these things very holistically. Yeah. I want to skip ahead to Chapter 7 since we're doing the food thing. Roots yeah. rule. Yeah. They do. Um, yeah, so um, I had uh, a lot of conversations. As I said, uh, the climate diet, uh, which really was, by the way, you know, intended to be kind of a gift book by the register. Uh, unfortunately, it came out during COVID, so there was no register. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> holiday times, please, buy a copy. Yes, yes. Um, um, but so it tur- during the research for this book, as I said, I was trying to find experts who had opinions across the board of many different things. And there was a really interesting um, – PhD candidate at the University of Washington, who did a nutrient density per unit of carbon um, for lots of different foods. And it turned out that in terms of maximum nutrients for the minimum uh, amount of um, carbon emissions, um, the carrot did pretty much the best. So oh, you I be love super. carrots. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, we look, I'm batting 50% with you. We got, we <laughs> no oysters, oyster, but, but carrots. <laughs> but the carrots. But yeah, so carrots are super great. Um, super high nutrition um, and very efficient to bring to market. So, um, and, and the other tubers are also that way. Potatoes are quite good. Um, anything that's a root is pretty good usually. Hmm. Okay. Um, Paul and I are going to take a break. Um, it is Paul Greenberg's book, The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint that we're talking about. And uh, by the way, for those of you who are uh, listening to my voice uh, in the northern areas of Chicago, you'll be pleased to know that Barnes & Noble just in the last few days reopened at Old Orchard. So um, they have a huge selection of books. I'm sure that they can come up with Paul's book for you, The Climate Diet. When we come back, we're going to skip to Chapter 8. Avoid flying food. We'll explain what that means right after this. Take Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
I'm joined by Paul Greenberg, author of The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. And when I first read the headline for Chapter 8, Avoid Flying Food, I thought he meant, oh, no duck, no no pheasant. Uh, but that's not what he means at all. He's uh, he's being very, very practical. Explain, Paul. Yeah, well, by flying food, I mean food that comes to you literally on an airplane. And I think a lot of consumers don't think about how their food physically got to them. Um, but when you fly food um, instead of sending it by truck or, best of all, by ship, um, you're making a huge carbon, carbon footprint. So, like, there was one study in the U.K. that found while only 1.5% of fruits and vegetables in the country were carried by air, they accounted for 40% of the total CO2 use and transport of food. So, wow. huge, huge impact, yeah. So, um, you know, what are the flying foods? Um, generally, uh, fresh fish um, is a big one. Uh, Not frozen like, fish? Uh, frozen fish is not a problem, actually. Frozen fish, um, because they freeze it usually, like I've spent a lot of time reporting in Alaska. Some of your listeners may have read my fish books, Four Fish and American Catch. <laughs> but in, in those books, what I found is that they freeze on site. Um, they bring it down to temperature, put it into the hold of a ship. And once it's down to temperature, it actually doesn't require that much to keep it frozen. And oh. then you send it very, very slowly to wherever you want. And that is a very, very low-carbon way of shipping. It's like more than 10 times uh, more carbon efficient to send by ship frozen than it is to fly something fresh. So if you're trying to stay away from the flying fresh foods, uh, stay away from fresh fish that's flown that's not local, um, berries out of season, pineapples out of season, asparagus and green beans are all things that often end up on an airplane when they're out uh, of season. So when I see a sticker in the grocery store and it, in the middle of winter and it says whatever fruit I'm looking at came from Chile, that was yeah. probably flown. There's a pretty good chance. I mean, there's all sorts of tinkering that goes on to kind of keep food fresh and be able to make a longer journey. But, you know, why not not have that <laughs> you know, and not yeah. even really risk that question? There's plenty of, you know, our, we, we live in a, in a, in a world of, of abundance in this country and you do have the options and it's better to choose, I think, the most climate safe option when you shop. Will you talk about trying to buy local? Explain what you mean by that and how local is local how far can local be <laughs> well i mean it's it's it depends how you're getting there right you know if you can ride your bike to the green market or the supermarket that's that's i mean if you ride your bike to the green market and the food's in season um that's probably the best thing you can do um but when i say buying local is good to a point um we were mentioned which talking earlier that when you buy stuff out of season that requires a greenhouse, though, and artificial heat being brought in, that's not always the best local choice. So you want to be logical with your local purchases, purchase stuff in season. Um, and if you have to actually, if you want something that is out of season, um, it's best either to get that from a warmer climate or actually get something that's frozen. Because as I say, when something is frozen on site, um, it, it tends to have a lower footprint because it can be sent slower. And what do you mean when you say buy your food naked? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I had a back and forth with um, somebody who looks at the carbon footprint of food, and he's like, do you really want to stress your, your readers out that much? And you know, <laughs> so, so, so uh, packaging accounts for about 5% of food's carbon footprint. And, um, you know, it's not the biggest thing that causes uh, food to have a carbon footprint, but it's something that can be avoided, and rather easily it can be avoided. So try to avoid those kinds of things. And, you know, one thing that's in particular that we should try to avoid is aluminum foil and aluminum packaged things, because aluminum um, is... But isn't that recyclable? 
Yes, it is recyclable. And if you do have some aluminum in your house, use it again and again and again and again and again. But buying it just because it's recyclable doesn't mean that it's not a heavy, heavy footprint on the world. Something like 3% um, of the global supply results in 1% of all the world's green, greenhouse gas emissions. So no, let me actually read that back. Aluminum manufacturer requires tremendous amount of electricity, about 3% of the global supply, resulting in 1% of all the world's greenhouse gas emissions. So, so aluminum is a, an expensive thing to make. And so if we do have it in our homes, we want to reuse it as much as possible. Huh. Um, so after you've used, um, say you've got a dish in the oven and it says cover it with aluminum foil, you can take that aluminum foil off and wash it or rinse it and reuse it. You can indeed. And, you know, what I've actually found, um, and this is just my own particular obsession that drives my family crazy, but, you know, anything that's packaged in food, you can pretty much assume it's food safe. And so I actually save a lot of packaging um, and reuse it rather than like, I don't buy Ziploc bags. I don't buy, you know, packaging stuff, additional stuff. Um, I try to avoid food that's packaged at all. But if I do use packaged food, I try to use those containers as much as possible if I need to keep my food fresh. Um, And I know that uh, some people are buying beeswax covers uh, to cover um, food that they, you know, leftovers they want to put in the refrigerator instead of putting saran wrap over it or something like that. You can you can mold beeswax and it fits any kind of um, if you have enough of it, it fits pretty much every container and it is reusable. Yep, yep. I first came across it. I did a little bit of work with Patagonia, and um, they gave me a few samples to try. And it's great. It does uh, f- uh, form fit to anything, any kind of container. Um, it's a great natural product. So, um, you know, if you can move to replacing these endlessly throwing, throwing, <laughs> you know, disposable stuff that you, you know, we've, we had two children of the 70s grew up, you know, just, you know, why use that when you could have this and throw it out? Mm-hmm. And be done with it? You know, that's a whole ma- mindset and mentality that I think we really deeply have to get away from. Paul, I know that uh, your time with us is limited. We have a couple of minutes left. Yeah. Um, what is, you know, I've gone over the, the things that I think are going to be helpful to people over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend with eating, but there's so much more in your book. Pick, I know it's a, I know it's a big book, pick one or two things that you want to share with the audience before we wrap this up. Yeah, well, um, I think, well, let's just talk about getting to Thanksgiving in the first place. Um, You know, there have been various studies and there's different ways of judging it. But um, recently I came across um, a finding that said something like beef and cars are really our two biggest climate problems. And so before you even go to Thanksgiving, think about how you're getting there. Is there a possibility to go on public transportation? Could you carpool with some relatives, even if they make your skin crawl a little bit? (laughs) Um, That's a really, really good way to start. Um, And then, you know, the other thing is at the tail end of the meal, I don't think we quite, we're we're sort of coming to the end of our time, but um, a lot of thought should be put into what you do after the meal. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's always in my Thanksgiving, tremendous amounts of leftovers, and a lot of it ends up in the garbage. Um, I would like to see people, first of all, plan a little better so that there's not as much food waste, because it turns out that um, food in landfills generates a huge amount of methane, which can be 20, 30, 40 times more potent as a greenhouse gas. So throwing food in the garbage is a really terrible thing to do. So the more we can do to reduce how much we're putting on the table in the first place, processing that food and figuring out a way to deal with that food on the other end, that's super, super important. 
I heard somebody was writing about the holiday and they said, you know, even if you're going to be a guest at somebody else's table, show up with containers, empty containers so that you can take leftovers home. That's right. And I, you know, I, I did use my own crazy obsessions this time around because I always make the, the autumn vegetable medley. And um, <laughs> I had all these Chinese food containers that um, I had saved up from the years. Um, and I packed everything in them with the idea that I know that my sister-in-law always has this problem that people don't have enough containers to take stuff home mm-hmm. after. So I'm bringing her the container. So I'm Brilliant. going to her. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> We should all be so responsible. Well, um, I'm actually hosting Thanksgiving this year. And uh, if any of my guests and family members are listening, feel free to show up with all the containers you want, uh, because I am happy to send leftovers home. Happy, happy. Paul, thank you so much. It is a wonderful book. And I really hope that uh, people are able to pick it up. And it's, you know, it's the writing is clear. The ideas are clear. It is very digestible, if I may say so. <laughs> well, a good note to end on since it's Thanksgiving. But congr- uh, good luck in hosting and good luck in getting that food in those containers. And thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Paul Greenberg, The Climate Diet. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Hope you're getting ready to have a great Thanksgiving holiday. With family and friends, we have been talking about things that you can do this holiday season to be a little bit of a better consumer. We, um, uh, When the holiday is over, we are going to, of course, be focusing on Chicago's mayoral race. Um, we are also going to be focusing December 6th is when the runoff is for the Senate race in Georgia between the Reverend Raphael Warnock and football player Herschel Walker. We've got lots of politics to cover, Uh, but right now we are focusing on being more responsible and being better consumers. My next guest, you might wonder why I asked her to join us. Uh, Freya Burton is the chief sustainability officer at a company called Lanza Tech. They're based in Skokie. And okay, Joan, you know, I guess... Uh, we all want to talk about sustainability, but why this person and why this company? Recently, I learned something about something called the Earthshot Prize Awards. It's an international contest. And though they fund when the, the winners, they fund some of the most promising projects around the world. It was started by um, Prince William of Wales. They fund projects in five categories things that protect and restore nature, things that clean the air, things that revive the oceans, Um, companies and organizations trying to build a waste-free world and fix the climate. So I was very surprised to find that this Skokie-based company, Lanza Tech, was the only American finalist 
in this year's competition for one of these Earthshot Prize Awards. And I thought this was something that we need to look into and learn more about why this company and what is it that they're doing that has made them a finalist for this award. So I'm happy to introduce you to Freya Burton, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Lanza Tech. Freya, so thank you for being here and being willing to explain to us what is going on at your company. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Yes, we can hear you just beautifully. Brilliant. Um, well, no, it's uh, it, it's a, f- a funny story. We we are in um, the Illinois Science and Technology Park in Skokie, and we've been there for a number of years. Um, and and often people say, "What well, you you're just in our kind of backyard, and you're doing all this this work globally." And uh, and and really, we've been developing a technology over the last fifteen years, and now scaling it up, and have got the recognition um, from the Earthshot Prize. Um. If I understand what it is that drew their attention, you're doing something with microbes and they eat uh, emissions. Do I explain that a little more clearly? Absolutely. So, so really, what we do. I mean, we all, um, you know, coming up to the holiday season, uh, if we think about, there's going to probably be some uh, wine and beer around. So let's talk about. (laughs) how we get there normally we we use uh, you know sugars and yeast uh, in a process of fermentation to make alcohol really what we do is very similar we actually take um instead of sugars we take pollution and instead of yeast we take a, a, a bacteria now often when you you talk about bacteria people go a little you know stop wanting to talk to you but this is a very <laughs> safe living organism it actually has the same safety rating as yeast um it's it's pretty harmless it actually dies if it's exposed to oxygen so there doesn't have to be any fears that there'll be uh, you know bacteria <laughs> taking escaping. over the world and and but essentially what this bacteria does it's amazing because it eats carbon in pollution so if you imagine for example a steel mill with a, a big chimney and normally you'd see you know big um, clouds of pollution coming out of that um, steel mill um, we can actually take that gas before it's put into the atmosphere and pipe it to our, our bacteria and so we don't do that in Skokie, but you, we can sort of, it's a bit like retrofitting a microbrewery onto a steel mill. And we feed that bacteria the gas um, so it doesn't go into the skies, keeps the skies clean. Bacteria eats it, loves it, ferments it and makes alcohol. And, uh, and that's what we do. We, we, we convert pollution to um, products and, and, and what we actually make, we make ethanol as a primary um, product. So you, you the know, little microbes blend. make ethanol? They make ethanol as they grow and they eat the carbon. They grow and they produce ethanol as a natural product of its growth. And, and so that ethanol can be used um, directly. So, you know, we can sell that and blend it into your, your car. Um, you can also actually do a lot of things with ethanol that you know, we probably don't think about it. You know, we have ethanol in fragrances. We have um, ethanol in cleaning products, so floor cleaner, window cleaner, and so on. Um, and so we can use, you know, think about it in the sense you're cleaning the skies and cleaning your home, you know. So we can use that ethanol to make products that we use every day. And we've been working with a lot of very large consumer goods companies who've said, hey, we we have carbon in our supply chain. We'd like to 
use recycled carbon instead of virgin fossil carbon. And Lanzatech can help us do that. So we've worked with companies like Unilever who are making um, laundry detergent. Uh, we can actually make the ingredients for laundry detergent with that ethanol that we make. We've worked with Lululemon and Zara to make fabric, so polyester fabric. Actually, the ingredients. Wait a minute. To make You've got these little microbes are making something <laughs> that turns up in yoga pants? Absolutely. So, you know, you, we're kind of bringing together these relationships, steel mill and a company like Lululemon. Who would have thought it, right? You know, so we're taking emissions that would otherwise harm our planet and we're using them to make the building blocks to make all the things we, we use. So, I mean, yeah, we're coming up to Black Friday, right? Uh, lots of people are going to be shopping, um, you know, and, and what we want people to do is really think about where their carbon comes from. You know, we, we often think about, you know, fossil inputs for, you know, heating our homes or, mm -hmm. you know, running our cars or, or flying. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of travel this weekend, right? Um, but, but carbon is in everything we have. So we, you know, if you look around, you know, where you're sitting, where you're listening to this, you know, you might be wearing sneakers, you know, the foam in your sneakers, uh, you know, this comes from fossil carbon. You know, you might be wearing a synthetic fiber, you washed your clothes, you know, think about all the things where fossil carbon is in the products we use. And we can actually replace that with what we call recycled carbon. This is just fascinating stuff. You said at the beginning of the interview that you were um, starting to scale up. When will when will this be available everywhere all the time and save us from our carbon uh, fixation? Yeah, so we are scaling up. We actually have a number of um, commercial facilities operating now. Um, three of them are in China. Uh, we have uh, one coming now, up. Now, when in, you say uh, you have commercial facilities, you mean you have like like producing um, warehouses yeah. where all these little microbes are happily <laughs> eating away? Yeah, basically uh, sort of like this analogy of the brewery, like sort of breweries attached to steel mills um, or metal processing plants or factories. Um, and they are doing this at a really large scale. Um, but then we have to, you know, we have to make enough product to satisfy you know, all the customers. So be it, you know, a Unilever, a Zara or, you know, other consumer goods companies who want to um, bring that ethanol into their supply chain so we can buy the products. Um, we need more. So we are now in this like journey of scale up um, and we have, you know, about 14 more of these microbreweries um, in design and construction around the world. Are any of them in uh, design and construction in the United States? Yes, yeah, so we have actually what we're doing in the United States is we're really focusing on making sustainable aviation fuel. So um, we actually have developed a, a platform um, together with the U.S. Department of Energy National Lab, Pacific Northwest National Lab, um, to convert ethanol or alcohol to jet so it's a, a platform called Alcohol to Jet. And our sister company, Lanzajet, who's also based um, in Illinois, um, in the Chicagoland area, um, they are scaling that at a facility in Georgia. And so we have our Freedom Pines biorefinery um, and Freedom Pines fuels in, in Georgia, where we are building um, the, the sort of the first U.S. Um, alcohol to jet facility. So if you think about taking 
pollution um, and converting that into sustainable aviation fuel. And that's what we're doing. You know, I was just talking to a gentleman about um, the supply chain when it comes to food. And one of his recommendations is, you know, try to buy uh, frozen fish, say, as opposed to fresh fish that's been flown in, because we know that flying is a is a really um, expensive carbon wise way to get anything anywhere. Do you foresee a time if this can be scaled up? When we don't have to feel so guilty, maybe about about flying. I mean, you know, Khloe Kardashian has been getting a lot of grief about using her private jet because of all the carbon she is letting loose in the world. Um, will we be able to fly guilt free in the near future because of these microbes? Yeah, well, you know, we have to, you know, existentially for the aviation sector, they have to have new ways of, of fueling flight. And we all, you know, we're, we're all thinking about electric flight. That is still a ways off, but it can be done for local, um, you know, short hops. For long haul, we're going to need a new source of sustainable aviation fuel. And, and Lanzatech will be part of that journey. We are not the only one doing things like this. We're the only one using our amazing microbes. But, <laughs> but you know, there are others in this space. And, and we're really a, a pretty tight-knit family of a kind of carbon revolutionaries. We, we're all working together for the same aim. And, you know, the United States has actually got a very strong agenda to support sustainable aviation fuel. And that's relative to the rest of the world. Um, and also to support, um, you know, these new sustainable approaches that use biology um, in particular, um, which is what we do. We need uh, to take a quick break. I'm speaking with Freya Burton, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Lanza Tech and also a carbon revolutionary. We are going to continue our conversation right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Freya Burton is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Lanza Tech. It's a Skokie-based company that has created these wonderful little microbes that like to eat carbon. Um, we have been talking about this company because it came to my attention that they were a finalist for something called the Earthshot Prize Awards. These were started by Prince William's, Prince William of Wales as a way to create a contest that would focus attention on and then select a few projects to fund uh, basically companies, organizations, people that are really trying to not just protect our world, but really improve it. Um, when did you find out, Freya, that your company was a finalist for the Earthshot Prize? Uh, yeah, so we found out, uh, well, at sort of a month or so ago, um, and, uh, well, we were... We, we were a bit shocked, to be honest. Um, you know, we've been we've been at this for for a long time, and to get that recognition from you know the the, the Earthshot Foundation and and um, 
and be recognized alongside all these finalists you know we we pretty much we got a i got a text message and um then managed to get the earthshot people in touch with our ceo jennifer holmgren and uh yeah there was a lot of uh excited screaming i would have to say down the phone (laughs) when we heard well this has really i mean regardless of whether or not you win this has really raised the whole profile of the company and the work you're doing hasn't it absolutely we you know we would we'd love to to win but we are so thrilled to be finalists and and you know to you know we the other companies um who are finalists as well are so inspiring you know the whole earthshot sort of movement was really founded off the principle of kennedy's moonshot approach you know and um and and actually it's you know the um the awards this year will will be in boston at the kennedy library there and uh, just as a sort of reflection on that and so for us you know to to have to have the awards here in the US and to be the, the only US company as a finalist amongst such esteemed you know other finalists is is really just wonderful and it, uh, the ceremony where the winner is going to be announced is December 2nd and when they make the announcement i believe t- correct me if i'm wrong there will be five projects selected that will receive something like a million pounds in funding? That's right. So there's f- five categories, as, as you mentioned earlier. We're, we're a finalist in the Fix Our Climate category, um, and the, each, each category has three finalists, um, and then the winner would um, receive a million pounds. But, but what's awesome about this award is that um, we stay connected through um, the Earthshot um, sort of team and um, they they offer a lot of support and um, advice to help all of the finalists grow their organization and um, uh, you know over the coming year so as uh, so regardless of what happens we're getting a lot of really wonderful exposure and, and support from them we've talked about how Lanza tech is using these uh, little mo- uh, microbes to clean up carbon I haven't asked you I mean do these microbes have a name and is it pronounceable they do have a name. They're, they're a form of Clostridia. It's a very ancient microbe. Um, you know, some some will say it's it's one of the most ancient organisms on the planet. So, um, you know, when billions of years ago, the the atmosphere on Earth was much like that of you know in a flue stack at a steel mill, or you know, very rich in in um, carbon oxides and um, and other gases very little oxygen and so these little bacteria that don't use oxygen to live they really thrived and so in a way we're using this very ancient um sort of biological organism to solve a very modern problem this seems like you know it makes sense listening to you explain it but it um if if somebody had had said you know um you know, the earth used to be like this. You know, obviously things changed. There were microbes that helped with that. How did you find these? I mean, I know once you've got them, you can grow them. But, you know, where do you go yeah. looking for these, uh, these ancient bacteria, these ancient microbes? Yeah, well, so the company was founded um, 17 years ago in New Zealand. And um, the the two gentlemen that founded it, Dr. Sean Simpson and, and Dr. Richard Forster, um, who sadly passed away, Dr. Forster did, um, in 2014, um, they had worked together to try and make fuels from 
um, biomass, so plants. Um, they realized very quickly it wasn't going to work. And, um, and so the company they were working for went out of business and they actually had some redundancy pay. And together they were both biologists and they, they put their heads together and said, okay, we need uh, resources that are available, that are low cost, point sourced, don't hurt the environment, the land, don't impact food, don't hurt the animals and biodiversity. Um, and they hit upon the idea of, of using pollution um, or carbon, uh, waste carbon in, in the form of waste gases. And so from there, it was really just looking through um, scientific journals and uh, reading as much as they could. And they found a paper that talked about uh, an organism, a bacteria that could eat uh, the carbon. Now, believe it or not, you can actually get bacteria from bacteria libraries. Um, and <laughs> really? We, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I huh. remember being asked to, to, uh, to write off and, and get one of these bacteria sent to us so we could see if it could actually do what we wanted it to. When we got it, at the lab, it was a bit of a diva. It refused to do anything. It wanted very expensive, clean gas, uh, you know, very nice sort of high quality vitamins and minerals. And we thought, well, this will never work because a steel mill, it's got to mm -hmm. be industrial, you know. And so over the years, we've, you know, essentially evolved it over the years and really taken those um, surviving populations of bacteria that um, thrived in low cost you know, difficult conditions till we got to a point where we could have a, a strain that we could just ship out to steel mills around the world. And, you know, not just steel mills, it, it can actually consume gases made from any type of solid waste or, or refinery waste or um, factory gases. Um, and it now just consumes the carbon and does its thing. So you toughened it up. We toughened it up. Yeah. No more Lancetic. four seasons yeah. for these microbes. Exactly, it's 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 definitely gone uh, uh, pretty uh, through boot camp, Lancetech boot camp, to get it to where it where it is today. The technology that you're working on, I know it's already being used in large scale. Do you ever envision it being used some way in a person's home? Yeah, I mean, I think ideally we see a, a, the future as, as really creating a distributed system. That's the only way we're going to compete with the, the fossil industry. You know, we can't make these enormous centralized refineries. Uh, and so we're working to, you know, scale and get down the cost curve and and have sort of modular systems. Uh, today, they're large because economics makes sense that way. But we'd certainly love to see a future where we have, you know, smaller systems where we can install them, um, you know, in people's homes. That's that's a long way off. But, you know, everyone thought we were crazy at the beginning. Why, you know, <laughs> why stop? Why stop thinking of things that people think are impossible? It is. Uh, it's so wonderful to listen to s at least one of the ideas that could really make a difference. You know, we've talked about, we see in the news every day, Freya, about how climate change is, um, is already on us. You know, I was just talking the other day about how the people of the island of Tuvalu are digitizing their history and their language because by the end of the century, Tuvalu isn't going to exist anymore. It is going to be underwater. Is this technology moving fast enough to save us? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. This, 
we are but one technology and we need everyone to contribute. We need all solutions. And right now, you know, we've just come off the back of the COP talks and quite frankly, pretty disappointing again. A lot of talk, no action. And and we really need more action. We need steel in the ground. We need projects to be deployed. And it, it often seems like we're waiting for the perfect solution to come along before mm. we'll actually do anything. And we need all solutions that can start making any kind of impact on our carbon problem um, because we've we've pretty much run out of time. And, and so, you know, what you're, you're saying about um, Tuvalu, it, it's heartbreaking. And, and this is happening all around the world. You're you know, there's the, the, the impact of climate change and, and it does uh, hit, you know, it disproportionately hits those who, who have less. Um, be it in the developing world or in the developed world, those in a in sort of mm-hmm. um, challenging socioeconomic circumstances, and we we just have run out of time. So, you know, my my message to everyone is, you know, support all the solutions, do everything you can. Don't just focus on one thing, especially if you know if they're policy makers listening. It, it's so important to just get on with it and get things moving. Freya, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wish you luck on December 2nd, but I think that you guys um, are definitely going to be successful with or without the Earthshot Prize Award. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Uh, Freya Burton is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Lanza Tech. They're based in Skokie, and uh, they are developing a commercial use of microbes that eat carbon and change it into things that we can use. We are going to uh, take a break, and uh, we will be back after news. One little item I want to squeeze in real fast. Um, Lynn Bramer, our best friend in the whole world from XRT, who, as you well know, has been on a medical leave of absence to get treatment for his metastasized prostate cancer. Uh, XRT made the announcement that this coming Monday, the 28th, Lynn feels well enough to be back on the air. He's still going to continue his chemotherapy, but he is going to be back on the air doing middays at XRT this coming Monday, the 28th. And I, for one, could not be happier. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. We are taking a look at how to be better to our planet this day before we all break for a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and then gear up into the holiday season. We have been uh, talking this week to a couple different authors. On Monday, we talked to uh, Christy Mahali, who wrote a book, Diet for a Changing Climate, which told us that one of the things we should do is consider eating insects. I don't know, Christy, might be a bridge too far. Earlier today, we talked with uh, Paul Greenberg, who had some gentler, kinder ideas of how we can take care of the planet. Now I'm very happy to welcome Sandra Goldmark to the program. She's written a book called Fixation, How to Have Stuff 
without breaking the planet. Sandra, welcome to the radio show. How are you? Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Um, I, when I was reading about your background and the background of the book, I thought your story, how you got to this point, is so fascinating. You were a theatrical designer, and you have really sort of um, found a new passion in life. And if I'm uh, reading this correctly, a broken vacuum, a broken toaster, and a torn strap on a backpack changed your life. Tell us that story, please. That is all true, and I think I can connect those dots. So, yes, I was for many years a theatrical set and costume designer. Um, so I worked with stuff all the time, you know, making it, putting it on stage. Um, and the the moment in my life that you're referring to was I was home on maternity leave with my second child, and the vacuum broke, the, a lamp broke, the backpack, and actually I think a couple other things. And I started thinking that it was crazy that I couldn't get them fixed anywhere in my neighborhood. Um, when I knew because of theater that it is possible to fix these things. Um, we do it all the time uh, in the theater. Things break and you're not going to just throw it away and buy a new one. You're going to fix it. And I agree That's with right. you. We have become this uh, disposable society where, oh, it's broken. Just throw it away. Oh, it's not worth. And, and what I hate is when somebody says, oh, you know, it's not worth the time and the money to get it fixed because getting a new one is just so inexpensive. Mm. Well, that's one of the, the big questions is, um, so after all that stuff broke, I got really curious about those very questions you just asked, like, how, how, how did we get this way? So I started um, opening these repair shops in my neighborhood, and I got a bunch of theater colleagues to work in them to fix people's things, because we were curious about what you just said. If people had an option, would they want to get it fixed? Would they, in fact, pay for it? Or did they actually prefer to kind of just throw it away and get the new one? Yeah. And what did you find? We found happily <laughs> to, <laughs> that actually people were were extremely frustrated with the system. Like, yes, people like to get new things and it's super easy right now. You just click a button. But we found that a lot of people in our community were also frustrated. They knew when their vacuum or lamp or backpack broke that it was fixable and it felt wrong to them to just throw it away. But the problem was there were no convenient places to get anything fixed. or Exactly. And as you said, new stuff is really cheap. So are there are these two forces that were kind of just basically discouraging people from, from fixing anything. And so when you, you, you started these pop-up stores for the, with the people who knew how to fix stuff, they were well-received. And how did that lead to a book? <laughs> so it was funny. We, we started, um, we just did the first pop-up out of curiosity. We were, you know, we were sort of theater people playing repair shop. Mm-hmm. But the response in our neighborhood was so strong. People kept you know, they, they, they would come into our shop and they would see us fixing something. You know, they'd come with something expected, a lamp, a blender, and they would mm-hmm. see somebody fixing a, a handbag, a stuffed lobster, a picture frame, and they would say, oh, hold on. And they would <laughs> go home and get a bag of broken stuff and bring it back to us. And I thought, my God, what, what, you know, have they just been waiting this whole time for a bunch of theater artists to open a repair shop? Like, why are 
they hold yeah. on to all this stuff? And it and so we kept going. We did that first repair shop because we were so curious at, at what was happening in people's lives and how did they really feel about this system. And they kept talking to us and telling us the stories of their objects and the stories um, of how they felt. And so we just kept going. We did about 12 repair shops over a period of seven years, all over New York City. Each one was short, maybe three to four weeks. And we just listened to people and we observed what they brought us, why they brought it to us, what we could fix, what we couldn't. Um, And we started collecting so much kind of beautiful stories and information that much to my surprise, it turned into a book. (laughs) Well, you know, I think a lot of this Aside from the different mindset that we talked about at the beginning, a lot of this are lost skills. Um, I mean, I own, and I my whole adult life, I've owned a sewing machine. I do all kinds of repairs. And yet uh, some of my friends, when they see the sewing machine, it's like, it's like they feel like they've walked into a museum. Like, oh, you have a sewing machine. Like, nobody does, nobody has that anymore. Nobody does that kind of thing anymore. And, you know, my next door neighbor, part of his basement is devoted to equipment for woodworking. But those are, those aren't skills you find. I mean, not to sound like a dinosaur, but Sandra, I am a dinosaur. You know, when I was growing up, it wasn't that uncommon to learn how to sew. You know, now it's considered this almost bizarre skill to have. We've lost a lot, haven't we? We have, and I think it's unfortunate for a number of reasons. First of all, working with your hands in that way is incredibly satisfying. And second of all, on a personal level, I think, but second of all, as we as a society become more and more distanced from fixing and, and mending and making ourselves, we also become uh, accustomed to forgetting that it's something that, that, that can exist as part of the economy as well. I think of it a lot like food. Like, you don't always have to cook yourself a home-cooked meal or use the best ingredients. But if you appreciate cooking and you know how to do it, you might be likely to, when you buy food to kind of look for those healthier foods or look for things that are like homemade. And so I think that the loss of the ability to work with our hands, the fact that we teach it less and less in schools is actually part of what's moving us or accelerating us on this path of disposability. It's like we've lost a connection with the things, the objects around us. I'm speaking to Sandra Goldmark, who's uh, written a book about this world we live in, um, fixation, about fixing things. Sandra, when I was reading um, some of the background about you and and this book and your ideas, I came across a term that I don't think I understand, and that's circularity. What do you mean by that? Oh, I love that you ask that and that you are honest about that. You may not know the term because as soon as I tell you what it is, you're going to say, oh, I know that. I do it all the time. (laughs) So the circular economy refers to, um, it's a goal, transitioning from a society where we um, take materials from the earth, make them into products, and then largely speaking, dispose of them very quickly, a linear process often called take, make, waste. And a circular economy, the idea is we take fewer material, fewer resources from the earth, and we make them into products that last longer, that are repairable, 
that we keep in use for as long as possible. And at the end of life, we break things down and use those materials again. So it's a very simple concept that most people recognize as something that humans have done for centuries, millennia. Anybody who's ever bought anything used, anybody who's ever recycled or composted, anybody who's ever resisted throwing something away because they think, ah, this should be fixable. All Mm -hmm. of that is the circular economy. It's just very simply recognizing the value of, of in all the things around us and trying to not waste it. Sandra, we need to take a break. I'd like to continue our discussion. Sandra Goldmark is the author of a book called Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. We'll be back with more after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Sandra Goldmark is the author of a book called Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. She was a theatrical designer, and she realized that when things broke in the theater, they repaired them. And yet in real life, it seemed like, When things broke, people were inclined or felt they needed to just throw it away and buy something new. And she is trying to bring some of those ideas and sensibilities to the real world we live in every day. Sandra, I'm very lucky. I live in a smallish community, but we have a place where you can get um, it's an electrical repair shop where I have taken lamps before that needed fixing. We actually have something that's really disappearing. We have a shoe repair shop where you can not just get them all shined up, but get things re-sewn and resold. And I feel very fortunate that that way. But what about for people who don't have those things in their communities? What should they do? Well, uh, I, I too have a wonderful shoe repair uh, in my neighborhood. No lamp repair anymore, though. It's very sad. Um, I guess I would offer two bits of advice for people where repair has already left their neighborhood. Maybe the rent is too high or whatever. Um, first of all, you can learn to fix things yourself. It's not that hard. iFixit offers wonderful um, videos. But if you don't want... Is that, a, is that a website or is that a, yeah. is that a YouTube series, ifixit.com? Ifixit.com. They have um, all kinds of repair guides. And in fact, we use them sometimes in our repair shops when we would get something really, really gnarly. We would, we would, <laughs> we would go to the videos. <laughs> but also for people who are sort of frustrated with the path we're going on, um, I think it's important to raise your voice and speak up. Uh, a lot of manufacturers and retailers, believe it or not, are beginning to investigate this thing that we just talked about, the circular economy, and starting to, some businesses are starting to experiment with bringing reuse and repair into their business models. And I think if we as customers start to ask for it, it will help. People will start to realize there is a demand for this. It is possible to make this part of our, our neighborhoods and our economy again. If you're thinking of buying appliances, 
Are you more likely to be able to repair something if you buy something that's expensive to start with? Mm, sometimes. Like higher-end stuff? Like if, you know, instead of, a, um, instead of a Black & Decker mixer, maybe you buy a KitchenAid, or instead of a Hoover, you buy a Dyson. I mean, if you... Is, does that increase your likelihood of the availability of repair? Usually. There are a few exceptions. There are some brands. Um, Neil is, is good for vacuums. Dyson, KitchenAid is really good, as you mentioned, that are repairable, that make parts available. There are some items out there. Um, I remember we got a, a coffee machine in our repair shop, and it was red and shiny. Our, our friend Adam, who was trying to fix it, said, this thing looks like a race car on the outside. <laughs> But you open it up, and in the inside, he said, it's a piece of junk. So you do have to be careful that the companies you're buying from are are charging more, not for kind of fancy outsides, but are charging more because they're building something that they want to last, they, that they want to be fixable. And you can find that information out with just a little bit of research um, into the company or into my book or onto sites like iFixit. For phones, for example, and computers, iFixit has what you call, they call a repairability score. Ah. Oh. You know, it's great. So you can look up your phone or your computer before you buy it and find out um, if, they, if it's fixable. I know that um, I, there was one company, I think it was Apple, that was starting to interact with the voices who said that Apple products should be more, um, you know, like some of them, some of the computers that were sold, at least originally, they were literally you needed to have special tools only available, like at the Apple factory to open them up. And there's been a lot of pressure. I've been reading the Wall Street Journal uh, to to bear on companies like Apple to make products that can be repaired. This seems to be a sort of a cutting edge kind of movement right now. It's funny that it's cutting edge. You would think it sort of goes without saying, but of course, in this upside down world we live in, it doesn't. So the movement is called right to repair. And the basic argument is that manufacturers should not be allowed to create an object that can't be fixed that is closed with proprietary screws, as you said, or that where um, software malfunctions kick in if you try to fix it, where parts and manuals are unavailable. And it's actually a global movement that has made huge headway. More than, uh, I believe it's 27 states now have right to repair legislation either passed or in the, in the process. You know, it's um, funny that you say that because when you use that phrase, right to repair, it triggered a memory of a press release I've gotten in Illinois. I don't know if it is passed or if it is in process, but there is a right to repair bill that has been put forward. I don't know the status of it because we just triggered a random memory in my head, but we're one of those states. Yeah. And right to repair actually started with not just phones and things like that, but with farm equipment, where it was really the farmers who said, hey, I've got this huge combine harvester and it breaks down. I should be able to fix it myself and not be forced to kind of bring a, a service person out to my farm. So it's it goes from objects from large to small, and it's a it's a really exciting movement. So what's next for you? Well, I am. Uh, I the the shops are closed. So if, if there's any listeners who are about to pack up their blenders and send them <laughs> to me, unfortunately, <laughs> we're not. We we closed them before the pandemic to write the book, and also because 
what I'm really doing is, is kind of what I'm doing with you right now is helping people all around the country and the world talk and think about how we can begin to get back to a system that makes more sense, where we are um, reusing things for a long time, where we're repairing them, and when, where we're designing them to last. So that's everything from talk, thinking, you know, on an individual level, how you can shop differently, mm-hmm. um, to uh, corporations who are beginning to bring circularity into their business model, to things like policy, like what other kinds of policy incentives do we need to just end this cycle, this very wasteful cycle, this linear cycle. You know, you talked about how it struck you when you were a theatrical designer that when things broke in the theater, they were they were fixable. But you, where did you and the people who you worked with learn those skills? I mean, were you were these skills that you just taught one another? Um, I know that when I went to high school, we used to have one class in how to do basic electrical engineering. You know, there were there were classes that taught you how to how to cook. I don't know if any of that exists in the high school curriculum as it exists today. But where did you and your friends learn those skills? It's funny, you know, I guess I personally learned um either on the job in the theater. And I also learned a fair bit of, of fixing and mending and making from my, my mother and grandparents. Um, like, you know, I remember I used to come home for, for lunch in the summer and my grandfather would have the dishwasher in 10,000 pieces on the floor. <laughs> my grandmother would say, Oh my God, we have 10 grandchildren around, put that thing back together. <laughs> um, but so I learned from watching that and also from uh, when you make stuff for theater, you just you just you just get it in your bones. And any, anyone who can make can fix pretty much. Huh. So. Well, like you, um, I was also I was also taught a number of skills. And I think it had to do with the fact that, you know, my my grandfather was born in Italy and he didn't come to this country until he was in his late 20s. And, you know, nobody comes to a new country because they're well off. My the, my family was poor. And I think that my grandfather and his brother and all of my other grand uncles, I think fixing things was necessary for them. They didn't have the money to buy anything new. And I think that that got handed down to my father and to some degree to me. But it seems um, it's it seems to me that the people who need really economically to know how these how to do these things, learn these things and people maybe who don't don't learn them. Absolutely. And I think it's our job as a society to realize that those habits that that perhaps it used to be done out of frugality or necessity but habits of reuse and repair are absolutely critical as we think about the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we used to do it or our families used to do it because, you know, we couldn't afford the new thing. But now we live in a strange, again, upside down world where sometimes the, the new thing is so artificially cheap that it seems easier to just get it. But it is, in fact, trashing the planet. It is harming the people who make our things overseas and are paid very low wages. So we really need to get back to a place where we all kind of adopt these values that that were very common in earlier generations are still very common in low income communities. And we kind of 
need to name it as a powerful tool, not not a last resort, but, yeah. but really a first line of action. Sandra Goldmark is uh, the author of Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. Sandra, thank you so much for the conversation this afternoon. It was very enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving tomorrow. You too. Um, we are going to take a break. Speaking of Thanksgiving, Shelley Young is going to be here when we get back, and she is going to answer your turkey questions right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Hope you are getting ready to have a great turkey day. We have been talking about um, recycling and sustainability today, and I just see um, Andy Miles, one of our board ops, we were talking earlier about recycling your holiday lights. Evanston does it at three different locations. I'm sure there are other communities that do it as well, uh, but just a heads up, if you live in the Evanston area, you can go to the City of Evanston website and get that information. Now, um, we have been letting you know that uh, we were going to have an expert here to answer all of your Thanksgiving cooking questions. I'm happy to say Shelly Young from the Chopping Block is here to uh, to talk to us and give us some great information. Shelly, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You all ready for Turkey Day tomorrow? You know what? I uh, This is the first Thanksgiving, I think, ever I'm not cooking anything, if you can uh, believe it. No. I, mean, I have some friends that are having me over, and they they are insisting I don't bring a thing. But I did just cook Thanksgiving on Saturday. So, Do you um, find um, that people are nervous to serve you food? Yes. Yes, it's true. I You know, we I don't get a lot of dinner invitations to people's homes, because I think people get nervous, so... Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, peanut butter jelly sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I'm glad I'm glad you're joining us to answer questions. As I said in the email I sent you, almost all the questions revolve around safety. Um, Thanksgiving is traditionally a time when we share food poisoning with our closest friends and loved ones. And there are a lot of families who would really like to avoid that this year. So let's start yeah. with stuffing. The questions are sort of twofold. How to safely make stuffing, how to safely store stuffing, and how to safely cook it in, if you're cooking it inside a turkey. Well, you know, I, you know, if you're going to, you shouldn't have any issues if you're not stuffing the bird. You know, because you know the the stuffing on its own is 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 really not a problem for most people. Um, uh, meat thermometers, number one for Thanksgiving. You know, if you if you have any safety concerns, there's you know, meat thermometers are clearly helpful in you know making sure things are done correctly to the proper temp- temperature, but there there is also the safety things. It just takes all the guesswork out. So stuffing 165 degrees, it needs to be cooked to 165 degrees. So whether it's inside the bird or outside the bird, that's 
what it needs to be. And I think that's really the issue that people run into with their turkey because the turkey gets dry before mm-hmm. the, because it slows down the cooking of the turkey. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think someone asks, well, you know, how do I know when the turkey's done? Number one, it's the thigh that you really want to check. Um, so there's those little little pop-up things that pop up of the turkey to tell when the turkey is done. Well, it only is telling when the breast is done. It's not telling when the rest of the turkey is done. And so I So even if you have a little pop-up thing, it's good to check it with a thermometer. Well, yeah, because uh, you know, the the thigh is the longest cooking part of the turkey, not the breast. So that's usually the part that's undercooked. And so when you, if you stuff the bird, it slows down the cooking of the dark meat, but huh. not necessarily the white meat, because the you know the dark meat is down on the bottom. So you know it's it's kind of a double whammy if you stuff the bird. You know, you get a small quantity of delicious stuffing that may be improperly cooked. So make sure you take the temperature of the turkey, uh, the stuffing, 165. And then the turkey itself, take the temperature in the thigh and make sure it's one. It should be 175 to 180. We always have a debate about not only where the meat thermometer goes, but like, does you put it in the thickest part of the thigh? Do you put it all the way in till it hits the bone? Do you, you know, how we yeah. have this debate about, you know, where do you, how do you use it? Here, so what, here's what I do. I have these, you know, there's different kinds of thermometers. They have these cool ones now that are really handy for a turkey. You stick them in and there's like a cord that runs and then the thermometer sits outside of the oven. That's really cool. But not everybody has one of those. Um, so, but when you're checking, you want to put it in the meaty part of the thigh. shouldn't be hitting the bone. And here's the real trick is to move the thermometer around and check the temperature in, in multiple spots. Oh. And that way. And that way, because you really, you know, who knows where the best spot is. You know, I don't know. And, you know, I just made a turkey on Saturday. And I had put it in, I thought, a pretty good spot when I took the turkey out of the oven. I took the thermometer out, and then I moved it around in a couple different spots. And sure enough, it was way, the temperature was about 20 degrees less than where I thought that the thermometer was reading. So make sure to move it around. And one little other thing, if you do happen to buy a frozen turkey, and uh, right now, hopefully, (laughs) you have a frozen turkey, you know, make sure you're, you know, it's preferred to thaw that in the refrigerator. But at this point, you know, if you just bought the frozen turkey yesterday and you think it's going to be thawed by tomorrow, it probably isn't. Um, really? It like two or, yeah, it takes a good five to seven days for a turkey no. to thaw in the fridge. Yeah. And when you put the, so put a thermometer in the thigh before you put the turkey in the oven. And if you're reading around 30, 40 degrees, it's still frozen there. So that can cause another issue because the, you know, the breast is thawed, but the thigh isn't. And then it, cause that's the last part of the turkey thaw also. I have also frozen cranberry sauce and two unbaked pecan pies are in my freezer. I was going to put them in the refrigerator tonight. Have I waited too long? No, that's, I think you're fine there. It's just the turkey. It's so big and, and dense that it does take time, you know, in the fridge to thaw. If you, if you, if you, 
you know, if you're doing it late, the best way to do it is put it in the sink and cold running water constantly. You know, you have to keep the water going so that, you know, um, not warm water. If it's not warm water, no, because then that takes the turkey out of the um, proper temperature. Hmm. You know, uh, there's a window in uh, a, a four-hour window that we think of in the food biz. You know, as the safety window for food. Um, and so, like a turkey at in the danger zone, which is kind of like you know leaving it at room temperature. It can be at that for four hours in its whole kind of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, so, you know, you want to keep, you know, things, um, you know, over 140 degrees um, or excuse me, under 100, uh, you know, for under 140 degrees or, or excuse me, why am I getting this wrong? You have to get, it has to be above 140 degrees, you know, um, you know, and if it's supposed to be hot. Okay. And, um, you know, keep it at that temperature to keep it out of the, the danger zone. 140 degrees keeps it safe. That's a that's a good way to keep well, it hot and keep it safe. Well, I, I don't know that it's the safe zone, but it's it's the zone. You can't keep the turkey after you take it out of the oven in the, you know, in the oven because it's going to keep cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it drops b- below that 140 degrees, that starts to get into the danger zone, which happens, you know, when the you know turkey is sitting out. So don't let this. Well, if you take it out, out for four, if it's done it's like a few hours before the meal, can you put it back in? You you can, but it would take a long time for it to heat back up to that temperature. So you know, the turkey once it comes out of the oven, just know that it really has about four hours to sit out. Okay. And when you say it has four hours to sit out, like people are going to serve their turkeys, everybody sits around and has a really long meal, and then eventually you you clear the dishes from the time it leaves the oven till the time you pack it up and put it back in the fridge, four hours? Yeah. So, you you know, if you're, like, trying to get ahead of the game and you pull the turkey out at noon and everybody's coming at 3, you know, and you're like, oh, because, you know, I need the oven to cook the stuffing or, you know, whatever reason mm-hmm. that happens, you know, you, you're you running into issues by the time that people get there. You're probably not sitting down, you know, until 4 o'clock. So that's too long. You want the turkey to come out, you know, you know, a half an hour to an hour before you sit down at the table. Okay. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Shelly Young. She's the uh, founder of The Chopping Block. They have a place in Lincoln Square where you can take great classes, some of them online, and you can buy uh, interesting foodstuffs and great cookware. Um, when we come back, we are going to have a deep discussion about giblets. We'll be back after this. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. If you're going to buy a new home, refinance the one you've got, maybe you want a VA loan or a reverse mortgage, do what I did. Call Team Hochberg. They really are people we can trust. Uh, David was so happy after he worked with loan officer Mark Zenner that he posted a five-star review on Google. It said in part, my wife and I make good money, but I had no way to pay off our credit card debt. So I called Team Hochberg and worked with Mark Zenner. Mark helped us pay off $45,000 of credit card debt, eliminated our stress, and saved us over $1,000 a month. 
You can read that five-star review that David posted and almost 400 others. Go to Google, put Team Hochberg in the browser. If you want to experience that same five-star customer service, as I have had and thousands of CP, CPT listeners have experienced, then you need to pick up the phone. Call 855-56-DAVID or go online, 56david.com. That's 855-563-2843 or go on your computer, 56david.com. Lower.com equal housing lender, NMLS 1124061. That's the sound of the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program, saving you money and energy. With rebates on Energy Star appliances, so you can come back to a home full of savings. <laughs> Discover more ways to save at comed.com slash home savings. ComEd, powering lives. Diabetes, high blood pressure, anxiety meds, everyone's on them. If you're a 50-year-old male, maybe a bit beefy, or even with type 2 diabetes, a million dollars of term insurance may only cost you about 200 bucks a month. Affordable term life insurance is out there. Call term provider and speak with Big Lou at 800-481-1458. 800-481-1458 or visit BigLou.com. Remember, Big Lou's like you. He's on meds, too. Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack, but not with ZipRecruiter. Its powerful technology actively finds and invites qualified candidates to apply to your job. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you the needle in the haystack. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Shelly Young is the founder and owner of The Chopping Block. It is in Lincoln Square. It is a wonderful place to take classes and uh, buy good cooking stuff. Ray and I did a, I think it was a Spanish wine class a little while ago, and we just really had the the best time. We are talking Thanksgiving, and um, it is the only time of year when you will ever use the word giblets, which are little bits and bobs that um, I don't know why they're there. I don't know if they're even still there, and I don't know if anybody uses them, and certainly I don't know if anybody likes them. Shelley, how do you feel about giblets? <laughs> oh, I think it's delicious. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't, um, uh, I don't, I, like turkey giblets, I don't use a lot. You know, you don't get a lot in the package. That's the problem. So it's hard to do Oh, it. you need more giblets. You need more. Large quantities. And giblets, to be clear, liver, heart, gizzard, the neck. Yeah. Yep. Why? Why, Shelley? Why? <laughs> oh, Joan, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. We can't. I can't really plead that with with my vegetarian friend, right? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> So people, you know, in my family, they used to cook all this stuff up and throw it in the stuffing. 
Is yeah. that still what people do? People do do that, but not that many. I don't know. It's funny. I, I, I had a stuffing conversation on Saturday. Uh, As one does. I, I, yes, I had a, a cooking class, uh, and then I invited all my friends over afterwards to enjoy the bounty that I had cooked. And we had a, I asked everybody what kind of stuffing they liked. And there was one giblet person that they grew up with it, but they don't make it like that anymore. So I don't know anyone that actually does the giblet stuffing anymore, but I know there are people that do. Huh. Yeah. Mushrooms seem to be the most popular. And I was like, I've never put put mushrooms in my stuffing. I've never have either. Uh, I like lots of onion in mine. Mm, I like lots of sage. Mm. Ooh, sage is good too. That's that pepper. Um, I actually have some fresh sage, believe it or not, sitting on my kitchen counter. I made a, I, I browned it and served, a, put a sage butter over pasta for lunch today. But I have some sage left over. If I want to use it, if I want to add it to my stuffing, do I cook the sage first or just throw it in raw? You know what? I like to. Um, I do because it, it um, sage is kind of, you know, it has this kind of resinousy quality <clears throat> that people don't always love. So if you take it like you did for your pasta and you get butter or oil pretty hot and, you know, kind of fry it up in there, I really like the flavor of it um, mm-hmm. a lot better. And the texture, too. It has a nice crispy, crunchy Yes, texture. I like that. And then you can use that fat in the stuffing. Um, as well, that you cook the sage in. Oh, back to our safety questions. One uh, that you um, haven't answered yet is about transporting food. People want to know how they can safely transport food to somebody else's Thanksgiving celebration. I, um, you know, I I think it's a great question because so many people now, it seems, um, you know, they put the meal together as a group. You know, somebody's bringing that, you know, everybody brings something. So it's less of a hardship on the person hosting. So I think that's really cool. Um, <clears throat> the things that travel the best for long distances, if you're, you know, if I'm driving, you know, I'm from Iowa originally, if I was going to take the six or seven hour drive, I would be taking cold things, things that I can put in a cooler and keep in, you know, a cold state. Um, so, um, some things that travel really well would be like the dinner rolls. I was making those or, you know, the cranberry sauce, or, um, I could take the, um, you know, salads and things like that. Pies, those things travel really well without a lot of care. Um, if it's something that is more susceptible to food poisoning, those would be the turkey itself, the stuffing. Hmm. The green bean casserole, the sweet potatoes, those all have, or mashed potatoes, they they are moist, dense, high-carb or high-protein foods. And so if I were to, I wouldn't cook a turkey and drive that to Iowa. That would not be a good idea. Um, If I wanted to take anything like that for a long distance, I would um, take it cold. So if you if you want to bring mashed potatoes, um, uh-huh. put them in a put them in a cooler and surround them with ice. I would they would I would have them cold in the refrigerator first, and then put them in a cooler with ice. And so it, clearly, mashed potatoes aren't a great thing to bring, you know, because reheating them is not easy. Um, I would think that one would not be something I would take to someone's house because you know um, <laughs> you can't really reheat them on the stove. Stuffing could be reheated cold 
you know, from a cold state in the oven. Or it can be baked, you know, it can be uh, like the green bean casserole is nice because I don't even have to have baked it. You know, I could take it and then we can bake it at the house when I get there. If you were Uh, going to, if somebody said, bring, you bring the mashed potatoes, what would be, if you made them hot and fresh, what would be the maximum amount of time that you think they could travel without being refrigerated? Uh, So an hour is a safe, I think an hour is a safe window. Because I know what's going to happen in people's kitchens. You know, you're, you're in there, you know, you're, you're getting ready and, you know, maybe, you know, it works out where they're done right, right when you're ready to walk out the door, but probably not, you know, because, you know, I got to go take the dog and, you know, it's always hectic, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would, I would say about an hour and then, cause you know, I know there's going to be a little window, I mean, travel time, an hour, cause you've got probably some time in the house is who's going to be sitting there and then it arrives. Not likely it's going to land right on the table and be consumed the second it gets there. So it can be starting to sit around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, if you're, if you are going to take those mashed potatoes, I would also suggest, I always love um, licorice or any kind of um, enamel coated cast iron cookware um, that holds those hot things hot. So if I'm driving across town uh, you know, I'm just in Chicago. I'm going to the suburbs or I'm, do, you know, I'm in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I can take those mashed potatoes that I take them in my nice licorice pot. It really keeps them hot. Um, and you can even wrap that in foil, too, and that helps to keep them extra hot. But that, it, that cast iron has this really great insulating quality. Shelly, what is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Well... I think it's a combo meal for me, you know, so I like the combination of things. That's what I like. Turkey's not my favorite part of the meal, but I love the cranberry sauce combined with a really sagey, peppery um, stuffing, some gravy. You know what I mean? I like the little bit of everything together. I would be, I would cry without a little bit of fresh cranberry sauce. (laughs) I need, so I would probably have to say that, but on its own, it's not something I really like want to gobble up, but it cuts through some of the richness and brings something kind of bright to the plate, you know, and I can't, I like that. I like, you know, a salad with my turkey and some cranberry sauce and because otherwise everything's really cooked, you know, it's like a really, Mm -hmm. you know, like one kind of a one note meal. But that's just my personal taste. And, you know, or, or if I had to just, you know, maybe it's going to be the pie. Mm, yeah. Mm. I have a, what has apparently been, uh, I've been informed recently as a very odd habit. I really, my favorite part of Thanksgiving dinner is the turkey. But I like to put, I like to put butter on it um, when it's served on my plate. Like I butter it like I would butter a roll. And, and I think that is, and apparently people think that's very odd. My dad used to butter his hot. He would butter on his hot dogs. There you go, man after my own similar, heart. Similar, similar, similar. Yeah, nothing. I mean, let's butter. Fit. Butter goes with everything. There is nothing yeah, on this earth that isn't made better with butter. I'm going to have to try that sometime because I've never had a buttered hot dog and I've never had a buttered turkey. I'm going to do it tomorrow and I'm going to think of you. My favorite hot dog used to be something that a little diner near my house, which is sadly since closed, served called a franchisee, which was a huge hot dog stuffed with cheese and wrapped in bacon. And I'm telling you, 
It was to die for, mm-hmm. probably literally. Um, I mean, you probably literally could feel your arteries clogging, but man, oh man, it was good. <laughs> oh, yes, the memory lane. Shelly, thank you yeah. so much for answering our thank questions. You. Have a great Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Joan. You too. Uh, and Lady B, happy Thanksgiving to you too. I hope uh, you and your family have a nice holiday. And I hope all of you do. I know that there are people out there, because I used to be one of you, who will have to work this holiday weekend. And thank you. Thank you for doing that so that the rest of us can live our lives a, a little bit better. We appreciate you. I will see you this coming Monday. Um, if I'm not still in a turkey coma, which I don't think I will be after a few days. Have a great holiday weekend. I will see you Monday. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Patty, have a great holiday, too. Um, have a great evening. Stay safe. Good night. <laughs>